What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. We're going to have a lot more, by the way, on that nat gas price spike over the next couple of hours. But ahead today, we're talking about the level of rates that we're also hitting, 2.88%. It's the highest we've seen on the 10-year Treasury since 2018. It means mortgage rates aren't done going higher. And as for stocks, our guest says it means you should dump growth and go for those dividend payers. We'll talk about it. Plus, we're doing three buys into bail rising rates edition today. Three stocks to buy now and one to stay away from in this higher rate environment that might surprise you. And the missing link in the clean energy revolution is the power grid. We're going to look at some under the radar names that will be part of that transition, especially as the cost of traditional energy sources keeps rising. But first, he's back. Dom Chu has our numbers. I do have the numbers. It's good to be back, by the way. Just some time off for the family, but still. You, Kelly mentioned that $8 natural gas price. So you got both benchmarks for crude at $100 plus, $8 natural gas. Gold prices are pushing 2000 an ounce at this point. So that commodity story very much front and center for a lot of folks. But the major stock indexes today are actually moving lower, and they might be moving lower still. We've lost some momentum throughout the course of the day. We were peaking green at some parts of the market there. The Dow Industrial is now off about one quarter of 1%, 34,383. The S&P, 43.78, the last trade there, down about one-third of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite, 13,246, off about 100 points, roughly or thereabouts. Continued weakness in technology and growth stocks powering that Nasdaq to the downside. Now, if you want to talk about a focal point for the last week, week and a half-ish or so, it certainly has been the financials, the banks right now. One of only two sectors as of about five minutes ago that are in positive territory right now, energy because of those rising fuel prices, certainly doing some of the biggest upside work. But look at Bank of America, better than expected profits, revenues slightly better than expected as well. The overall tone of that banking sector, though, affected for Bank of America up 4%. J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, among the traditional banks, money center banks that are doing well as a result. And then Morgan Stanley on the investment banking side to give you an example of what's happening there, up about one and a half percent. Interest rates are still a big part of that story. Benchmark 10-year Treasury note yields, as Kelly points out, right now 2.86 percent. They got as high as 2.88 percent earlier today. And the reason why that's a big focus here, and the reason why I'm putting a four-year chart up there, is you've got to go all the way back to December of 2018 to see 10-year note yields at this level. And Kelly, by the way, because we made a big deal of it, we talked a lot about the inversion, right, of the yield curve of the 10-year note yield and the two-year note yield going negative. That, you recall, was the first week of April. About a month later, right, if you take a look at that, where we kind of stood things at that point, we are now back to where we were in March in terms of the 10-year, two-year spread. So you can see here a big move higher there. Go all the way back to the beginning of March for that, Kel. Back over to you. That is a nice steepening, Dom. Thank you very much. Rates do continue to be a headwind for the NASDAQ, but my next guest is picking up some big cap tech names that he says you can buy here. And he's also steering clear of one that might surprise you. Joining me now is Matt Maley. He's the chief market strategist at Miller Tayback. It's good to see you, Matt. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Let's get right to it. Your first buy is Meta. It's down 40% this year or thereabouts. Why do you think now is a good time to buy? 
Well, I just think, you know, one of the things I am a little cautious, of course, with the higher interest rates, and I'm cautious on the, t the tech area uh, overall. And uh, one of the things I want to look at is some of these uh, beaten down stocks uh, that, pr that provide really good value. Uh, there's also one that's, uh, that, that's not beaten down. But, uh, uh, but Meta, I mean, it's, it's funny how interesting how uh, Mark Zuckerberg basically, you know, they had some negative news and he decided very smartly, in my opinion, let's throw the kitchen sink. Let's just get all the bad news out there. And we can take or at least you know, maybe not take the target off our back, but maybe shrink a little bit in this election year. And uh, we won't go into some of those regulatory issues. And yet, you know, the stock is now trading with uh, uh, 17 times uh, earnings. So it's gotten a lot, a lot cheaper. And, you know, they grow revenues. That, I mean, it's on the low side. It'll be 20 percent. And I'm guessing it's probably uh, more like 30 uh, percent. So this is one you want to buy like every month between now and Election Day. And uh, next year, this stock is really going to be a great one, I think. Even if there's nothing about Meta or Facebook about the story that that excites people right now well i mean the one of the things of course is you say the meta and the whole thing with the metaverse and, and what they're what they're doing uh to move into that area it's kind of a long-term thing and a lot of people i think are really poo-pooing it saying uh, yeah that's yeah uh, that's many years down the road etc uh but uh, you know in, in many ways they're doing what 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 amazon did so well in the past where they've said hey we're going to we don't care about the stock right now. We're going to invest where we really need to invest, which is really going to make us a lot of money. Sure. And, and, and of course, the metaverse is that area. And I think it's going to work really well for them. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, that's 45 percent off the year high now. 208. Uh, you say stick with it for the long term here. What about Cisco? This one more of a dividend story. And, and sometimes I wonder if rising rates make dividends more or less compelling because maybe their 3 percent yield looked a lot better, you know, a, a point on the 10 year ago. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's true, but I mean, as, as interest rates go up, sorry, as interest rates go up, it does make anyone who pays a decent dividend yield uh, a better play. And again, since I'm uh, somewhat cautious on the group overall, the sector overall, this is again, it's a stock that's been beaten down. It's down about twenty percent. Certainly not as much as uh, Meta, but down twenty percent. Uh, a good, you know, long-term uh, company with a good management team, uh, and you know, it's you know, again, it trades at fourteen times earnings. They have a great a uh, uh, billion dollar uh, in cost savings that they're cost savings program they're, they're putting uh, in place and they still have a 15 billion dollar buyback uh, that's, that was put in place not a, a short time ago so with it down this much i think it's a, a good play again not the sexiest name in the world but i think in this environment with all the volatility it's one one you want to look at yeah the stock price for sexy right now is not something i think people really want to chase which brings us to apple which is not you know apple's still apple but this is a uh, name that seems you think to be kind of a perpetual perennial opportunity. Uh, you think it is so here? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I remember back in 2009, I had some, some in the summer, it was after the bottom and people, some retail brokers were asking me, well, you know, if you really get some people excited about the market again, and I said, Tell them Apple. Everybody owns Apple. <laughs> you know, if, if there's something they can grasp onto and believe in after the whole uh, fiasco of 2008, it was Apple. Well, the same is still uh, true today. I mean, people are saying, well, Tim Cook, you know, he's not an innovator in this. It's like, well, nobody's saying that anymore. And, and you think about, you know, we need, we need you know, when, and when volatility is this strong, what do we need? We need good, uh, a good solid uh, business. We need uh, good free cash flow. We need strong management team. Check, check, check. I mean, they, you know, they can generate a $100 billion of free cash flow just, just from the iPhone. So, uh, again, in the stock, you know, with the eight, eight, uh, 8% earnings growth, I'm sorry, 10% earnings growth and 8% and, uh, revenue growth, uh, this stock is just, it's, it's, it's just one in a volatile time that you have confidence in. And not only that, there's a lot of mutual fund managers who have a 
tens of thousands of, of, uh, of uh, holders uh, who want, to, want stocks that they can understand, and Apple's one of those names. So it's a good <laughs> And it's also 10% off its highs, 26 times forward earnings. Uh, so those are the vital stats. All right, finally, the last name here is one that you say, again, we're not trying to say this is a, a sell or a short or anything like that, but you wouldn't be in a hurry to add this one to the portfolio. Why not? Why not Microsoft, Matt Maley? What's wrong? Everybody is saying <laughs> you should add it to your portfolio. Uh, but, of course, we're saying the same thing about Apple. Apple, right. Uh, but your mouth here, Maley. What's going on? And well, the, one of the things is that it, it is great company, great long-term prospects, but the CEO, Mr. Nadella, he sold almost $400 million of his own stock uh, you know, in, in the company. And it just reminded me so much of what I saw, saw in 1999 when Goldman Sachs partners sold to the public and what Blackstone, uh, you know, the, the big PE firm did the same thing in 2007. And it, it's the, the, all those stocks eventually went higher. But people don't know the CEO of a company. And again, he's a great CEO. He's really turned this company around uh, and he has every right to do what he wants to do with his stock. But the thing is, he's going to get more stock, but he's going to get it at lower prices. The stock's down 80 percent since he made that sale. I think the rest of us should think about doing the same thing. Don't sell what you have. But the more shares, I think you're going to be able to get it at, uh, at lower prices. All right. Quick parting comment. When you say that these are places that you like in a sector that you mostly don't, is that because of rates? It, it, it is. And, and the other thing just last week, too, is that we saw what happened with uh, the chip stocks. They're up a little bit today with the market down. But, but uh, you know, we had Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the biggest name, biggest weighting in the semiconductor sector uh, in the SMH ETF. And yet the, the great earnings, and yet the stock went down and so did the group. Hmm. And it's really down near its March lows. For the, for, the, for the rest of the group. So it's, uh, it's just got me concerned with, with the action in these semiconductor stocks, uh, in addition to the, you know, of course, it all comes together with the, the higher rates as well. No, great reminder of Bellwether. We absolutely keep an eye on down 20% year to date that, uh, that index is. Matt, great to have you. Thanks so much. Matt Maley with Miller Tayback. Let's turn now to Twitter, where the board of directors adopting that so-called poison pill to defend itself against a hostile takeover by Elon Musk. Musk's offer to buy the company for $43 billion last Thursday led to an 18% pop in the stock pre-market. That reverse course and closed down by 2%. The stock up, eh, call it 3%, almost 4 in today's session. Julia Borston here with the very latest. Julia? Well, the latest is that Elon Musk crypto, crypt, cryptically, she tried to say, tweeted about what he might do next. On Saturday, he tweeted out, love me tender, with song notes hinting that he could make a tender offer to appeal directly to shareholders to sell the company. And then this morning, Musk tweeting, board salary will be $0 if my bid succeeds, so that's $3 million a year saved right there. He's referring to the board's salaries. Now, what happens now is the next question. The poison pill does give the board time to find another buyer at a higher price than what Elon Musk offered. On Thursday, Musk said in his interview at the TED conference that he has a plan B, but he didn't say what it is. He does have some other options, though, and hear what some of those options could be. He could line up a financing partner and increase his bid above $54 a share. Wed Bush's Dan Ives says roughly $60 a share would seem more appropriate for the company. Ives saying, quote, getting a deep-pocketed private equity partner would lighten the load for Musk and overall increase the attractiveness and viability of the bid in the eyes of shareholders. 
Musk could also lay out his strategic plan for collateralizing Tesla and SpaceX stock to the board and shareholders, and he could challenge that poison pill in court. Of course, Musk could also decide to sell his shares and walk away if he thinks that the poison pill makes buying Twitter too much of a hassle, though based on his tweets over the weekend and this morning, that seems unlikely right now. Kelly? Julia, stay right there. Uh, for more on what could be coming next, let's bring in Ina Fried, the chief technology correspondent at Axios. Ina, great to have you. Appreciate you making predictions about someone very unpredictable. So where do you think we're headed from here? Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing we know about Elon Musk is it's really hard to know what he could do next. As Julia said, there's a, a list of options, and I think we might see multiple of those. I think we might see him talk about you know, bringing in other people. I think we might see him talk about walking away. And really, I think the key point is he could do any of those things. And I also think Twitter now is in play, whether it wanted to be or not. And what do you think, Ina, is the significant, I mean, Let's put it this way. So now the board has adopted this poison pill, which what does that do? Does it effectively render his uh, traditional bid over, require him to have a partner? I mean, how how what would he have to do at this point to buy Twitter? Is that option even on the table anymore? It is. I mean, basically, a poison pill just keeps you from being able to kind of leave the board out of it. At the same time, the board still has its fiduciary duty to shareholders, so it's going to have to consider any offer. And it's not stopping him from putting in a bid. Look, any company, any public company, there's a price at which they need to sell to be doing their job as a company. So he could certainly raise the bid. You know, I think bringing in a partner isn't strictly speaking necessary. I think it might add more credibility and increase the pressure on Twitter to negotiate with him. Um, but at, at this point, it's a chess match. And what remains to be seen is how committed either side is to it. Remember, both of them are in a position right now. Nobody's committed to anything. The key question is, how much more pressure does Elon Musk want to put? Is he serious about this? How serious is he? And I think that's what the next moves will help show. What would you add, Julie? I mean, it obviously makes a big difference to the board, whether his partner is Oracle or Peter Thiel or something. And Maybe it just raises the price that they would ultimately be willing to accept. But at some point, like Ina said, they do have a fiduciary duty or whatever you call it, a duty to shareholders to get them the best value for this company. They do have a duty to shareholders. I entirely agree with Ina on all of these counts, including the fact that Musk is just so unpredictable. So for many people, the poison pill would be a real discouragement and might really force them to reconsider whether this was really worth it or how much they're willing to spend. Musk, you never know. He seems pretty determined to do this. But I think the key question right now is not just what Musk is considering, but who the board is talking to, which potential um, companies they're talking to about, about potentially buying the company and also which strategic investors, whether it's a private equity fund or others who might be interested in offering a higher price than what Musk offered uh, per share there. So I think that right now the board is doing everything they can to dig up some other offers to make this a competitive situation and raise the, the price that they could get for this company now. Although, Ina, it's one of those weird situations where it's not like his goal, it's not like an auction where he's kind of in there to try to raise the price and kind of make someone else have to pay more. I mean, he has sort of a philosophical reason to want to be involved, but I'm sure it, at some price that philosophical reason can't be surmounted. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things at play. I mean, I think fundamentally he wants a different Twitter, which is not the usual investor reason. Usually investors, you know, want a more profitable company or a more this, um, you know, with a financial bent. I think he wants this sort of different vision uh, with more free speech, he calls it. I think he'll actually find that very tough to do if he ever finds himself in that position. I do think the other interesting question is what other tech companies are out there that might be interested in Twitter and think they can do it in this regulatory environment. Twitter was seen as in play a while back. Salesforce was reportedly interested in a bid, Microsoft maybe. I think it will be tough now for the biggest tech firms to make a bid given the antitrust environment. Yeah. But certainly Twitter makes more sense as part of Microsoft than as part of SpaceX. Even though a big tech takeover would probably be more aligned with the current administration's goals than, <laughs> than an Elon Musk uh, involvement. Anyway, we'll leave it there, guys. Thanks for now. We appreciate it. Ina Freed and our Julia Borston. Still ahead, Wells Fargo upgrading Biogen today, saying with the shares down more than 50% from the highs, this setup is too good to ignore. They join us to make their case. Plus, we'll have more on how to play rising interest rates, including one money manager who's betting big on dividends. The names, he says, will power right through this cycle the exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Biogen are slightly higher today, but they continue to languish more than 50 percent below their 52-week highs as the company has struggled with the fallout from its controversial Alzheimer's drug, Algehelm. That said, Wells Fargo just upgraded the stock from equal weight to overweight, saying the setup is too good to ignore, and they expect a 25 percent rally from here. Joining me now is the analyst behind that call, Mohit Bansal. He's senior equity analyst at Wells Fargo. Mohit, it's good to see you. And why now? Thanks for having me and good afternoon. So why now? Because uh, this, like you pointed out, the stock has come down a lot uh, from its highs. At the same time, there were certain negative headlines which already played out in the stock. And where we stand now, uh, uh, they, 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 we, we, where we stand now, we think from now till year end, there is only one big catalyst that is remaining. That is uh, Alzheimer's uh, drug Lecanemab, which for which the phase three readout uh, will happen in the fall of 2022. And when we look at that particular event and risk reward into that event, it looks too compelling. So just to run you some numbers here, if that Alzheimer's trial does not work, 
the stock could be only down 7 to 15% because a lot of negative news is already in the stock. Sure. However, if it does work, the stock could be moving to $350 per share, which is 60% upside from the current levels. And that's why we are saying it is too good to ignore. What does the drug uh, you mentioned that they're working on, what does that drug try to do? So this is a drug for Alzheimer's called lecanemab. It is an anti-amyloid drug, which basically uh, uh, Alzheimer's patients have plaque buildup in, in their brains. And what this drug tries to do, it reduces the plaque and eventually helps slow the decline of function and cognition in Alzheimer's patients. So this has still been a, a big area of emphasis for them trying to, to do something on the Alzheimer's front. The fact that, you know, the biggest payer, the government, basically said, we don't feel comfortable enough to pay for this treatment, except in uh, trials, is not great news for them, even if they find some success with the next drug, isn't it? That is correct. But at the same time, uh, when CMS released those guidelines, the center, of, uh, the, the center released the guidelines, they left the room open for drugs which are successful in phase three trial. So put things, to put things in the context, uh, when CMS rejected the first drug, aducanumab, the reason was because the, the uh, approval from the FDA was controversial uh, because of mixed data set. Uh, if a drug comes out with a successful phase three trial uh, with good data, we do not think uh, the, the CMS or government is going to stop the payment given the given the unmet need that is out there. Sure. Uh, in but I think what's frustrating for biotech investors is your argument in some ways is not dissimilar from why people might want exposure to the to the asset class broadly, but not specifically. I mean, unless they know something about the likelihood of success here, it, you know, you're basically just hoping and praying that it works out. The same is for any other biotech company with a potentially promising drug pipeline. So, you know, I maybe it's just... You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it, I don't don't they need to offer people something a little bit more compelling in order to become a significant investment here? That is right. And look, uh, this this is a risky trial because CNS, uh, uh, neurological uh, disorders, are very difficult to tap into, and that's why we think. There is a 50-50 shot there. It's hard to take a call on Alzheimer's, but we think there is a 50% probability based on previous data, based on uh, the competing drugs in the same class. Uh, that's why even if you want to own something in the class or own the group as a broad uh, for, for Alzheimer's drugs, I think Biogen provides the best risk reward at this point, and that's why we are making a case for Biogen versus any other, any other company out there. Sure, and final question for investors who are interested in the biotech space more broadly, what are the other names or are there other names that uh, very much excite you right now? So right now we are pitching the likes of Abby and Vertex. Uh, Abby is a, is a name where uh, the company, uh, company is facing a, a patent cliff next year, but after that, it could look one of the best stories in biopharma. And Vertex, because their innovation engine is strong, they have a they have a long tail with the base business, and they are working on uh, certain transformative therapies out there. So we like we like these two stocks uh, in addition to Biogen. Yeah, a lot of enthusiasm for Vertex. Uh, uh, once again, those shares are up almost 30 percent this year. Mohit, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Mohit Bansal with Wells Fargo. Coming up, shares of Rivian are sinking today, and they're still down more than 60% this year. We'll look at what's behind the drop, and for the first time, get an inside look at one of its production plants.
And meanwhile, in the clean energy space, wind, solar, net zero, it all gets a lot of investor attention, but there is a forgotten key need for the energy transition. We've got some under the radar plays in the power grid coming up. And as we take a break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Disney and Honeywell, the worst performers, while Goldman and JPM are leading the way. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Dow's been up 167. It's been down 139 today. We're down 62 at the moment with red across the board, but slight gains, about two-tenths of a percent for the Dow and the S&P. The Nasdaq is down half of 1%. Let's look at some of the movers. Despite rates moving higher today, Charles Schwab moving lower and having its worst day since the pandemic in March 2020 after the broker missed on the top and bottom lines. They said trading activity returned to more moderate levels after last year's surge during the meme stock craze, and Schwab is down almost nine percent today. Now let's look at some of the incredible moves in commodities. You've heard us talk about oil, natural gas, but we're seeing a lot of this in the food commodities. We've talked about wheat prices. You see they're up 73 percent over the past year. Corn and rough rice today are making headlines. Corn at its highest level in nearly a decade. Rough rice at two-year highs. And we learn a lot about what these things are all called uh, the pipeline. Anyway, what does it all mean for the ag stocks? Archer Daniels, Midland, and Deer, those are benefiting. New 52-week highs today. They're anticipating farmers maybe having more income to spend on upgrading their machines. And natural gas prices, let's not forget, we're still seeing upward pressure, incredible upward pressure, in fact, for natural gas, which just a short while ago broke above $8 per million BTUs. That's a 13-year high. Uh, we're going to speak next hour with the CEO of EQT. They're the largest U.S. natural gas producer. Looking forward to that 2 p.m. Eastern on Power Lunch. But first... Shares of the EV maker Rivian, you think they'd be benefiting from these high prices, but not. They're down more than 60% this year as supply chain disruptions continue to plague the company. Rivian opened their doors to reporters for the first time at one of their plants in central Illinois. That's where our Phil LeBeau spoke with the CEO about their production hopes and dreams and realities. Phil? Kelly, when you take a look at that chart that you just showed about Rivian shares since the IPO in November, it's an ugly chart. Let's be clear about that. That's because of the production challenges they faced in the fourth quarter and as they ramp up in the first quarter, now into the second quarter. So it raises the question, when you talk with company executives, they talk about production improving, the cadence improving, 
is Rivian back on track? So let's take a look at the numbers. We went inside the plant. That's CEO RJ Scaringe there on the left talking with us uh, uh, last week, giving us a tour of the plant. Their Q1 production of just over 2,500 vehicles was more than double compared to the fourth quarter. And yes, the build rate is increasing. That includes the R1S SUV. They are slowly ramping up production there. And that brings up the question that we put to RJ. How comfortable are you right now about where you are in your production plans and the suppliers being able to meet your needs? It's been challenging from a supply chain you know, point of view with this environment. Um, but we're, we're seeing you know, daily records being set within our plant. But, but really, that's driven by how many components we can get particularly in the semiconductor space. Uh, but a lot of really good progress happening there, and, and we're excited for what's in front of us. Part of what Rivian's done is they have assigned employees, staff members, executives, to work with key suppliers so that they get a little better insight into challenges that might be popping up if there is a, a particular shortage of, whether it's a semiconductor or some other part, wiring harness is a good example of that. And as you take a look at shares of Rivian, keep in mind that their guidance for production this year, 25,000, that's the reason the stock's under pressure. That's well below what the company says it could make if it had better production and what many analysts expected them to say earlier this year. They were expecting close to 45, 50,000 vehicles in terms of what the production might be. And as long as we're talking about EVs, have to point this out, Kelly. This is a big week with Tesla reporting its Q1 results, its financial results. Those will come after the bell on Wednesday. And the big question, it's a little bit about the numbers in terms of, let's say, gross auto margins. How are they faring as the company opened a couple of plants? But more importantly, do we hear from Elon Musk during the conference call? Remember, he said in the past, if he doesn't have something to discuss, he may not be on that call. And given everything going on with Twitter, does he want to go on a call where a lot of analysts are going to be asking questions about his involvement in Twitter, what it means for Tesla? Or is he likely to say, I'll take a pass. I'll let the rest of the executives handle those questions about Tesla. Isn't Wednesday 420, Phil? It is 420. We've talked about this for a while. <laughs> When does 420 pass and Elon doesn't have an opportunity to do something related to it? Exactly. We'll see uh, what form it takes this time around. Earnings call or otherwise, it's going to be an exciting week for Tesla as it gets back towards a trillion-dollar market cap. Phil, thank you very much, Phil LeBeau. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The U.S. military will start training Ukrainians how to use howitzer artillery systems in the coming days. This according to a senior U.S. defense official, the U.S. previously trained Ukrainian forces in the U.S. to use switchblade drones. The Supreme Court has refused to hear a lawsuit challenging a New York City policy requiring school workers get vaccinated against COVID. Four public school teachers filed the suit. Three have been fired and the fourth has taken an extended leave. On the news with Shepard Smith tonight, how the Secret Service is going after cryptocurrency scammers and money launderers, an exclusive interview with the agency's new head of investigations. That is tonight at 7 o'clock. And bunnies and eggs aplenty in the nation's capital. President Biden and the First Lady celebrating the White House's first Easter egg roll since the beginning of the pandemic. It is one of the oldest traditions at the White House. Rutherford B. Hayes was the first president to hold the event, and that was back, Kelly, in 1878. Rutherford B. Hey, <laughs> it, it's so cute. I need to get some of those wooden spoons going for ours next year. Yeah. Slacking. Uh, Tyler, thank you very much. We'll you see you soon. It. Tyler Matheson. 
Still ahead, my next guest says don't let rising rates dissuade you from turning to dividends. He brings four names set to grow their payouts this year, including this one paying above 9% annually right now. We have the name next. Welcome back, everybody. Rates keep going higher. The 10-year yield hitting 3 point, uh, I'm sorry, 2.88 earlier this morning, which is a three-year high. And we're not just talking about the tech stocks uh, to avoid or buy as rates rise. My next guest says investors should really focus on yield, particularly from dividends. Jamie Cox is managing partner of Harris Financial Group. Again, Jamie, I understand that both the appeal, you know, dividend income is more important than ever, has to compete with, uh, you know, yields from other sources. But at the same time, it doesn't look as generous as it did six or 12 months ago. So you're focusing on dividend growers, is that right? Yeah, so Kelly, there's a couple of things that have changed over the past couple of years. In the last 30, for example, there's been a negative correlation between high dividend paying stocks and the bond yields. So bond yields go up, the high dividend paying stocks sell off. But over the past two years, that's that, in, that correlation has become very positive. We're all of a sudden seeing you know, it, the, the, the yields on these stocks in these high paying stocks actually go up. And so I think it can be explained partly because where interest rates are coming off a low base, but it also has to do with some of the sectors that these high dividend paying stocks now represent, mining, energy, materials. And I think that's where you're starting to see this break away. So in, the, in 2021, for example, it's a bumper year in dividend payouts for mining companies like Rio Tinto, which you cited before the segment even started, had wow. a 9% yield. And what we're seeing in a lot of dividend paying companies now is instead of these companies that have a lot of commodity exposure, where there's a really lumpy cycle where they go with these progressive dividend payout plans where they have to, they raise them and then the commodity cycle shifts and then the, comp the companies cut the dividends, which investors don't like. Right. These companies are finally starting to do the dividend payouts in a smart way where they start with a low base and then offer either special dividends paid once or twice a year or a dividend payout ratio where they target earnings or target target a certain operating metric. And that's really becoming, you know, it's actually making these companies more investable from a dividend standpoint. So it's it's funny because the examples that you brought, you have a couple of, um, let's call them sort of commodity materials names and a couple of financial names. The financial names are, are behaving more like I expect dividend payers where, you know, J.P. Morgan down 20 percent year to date. OK, it pays 3 percent. Great. You know, ING down 27 percent. OK, it pays 7 percent. But you're used to that give and take. What's really remarkable is that Rio Tinto is up 23% this year and paying 9%, that EOG is up 38% this year and paying 2%. What are investors missing if they pile into these stocks right now? Well, I think you're you're basically saying that the commodity cycle is just having a heyday with inflation, right? So you're seeing a lot of that, you know, a lot of these companies making bumper profits and they're starting to, you know, trigger the payout ratios at higher and higher rates, these dividend payouts. And I have a feeling you're going to see them go up. So from an investment standpoint, if you're looking for dividends, you know, throughout 2022 until the commodity cycle tops out and starts to decline, you're probably going to be fine owning these for a while. On the banking side, which you decided, you know, you have so many other factors at play. You have a government involvement, which restricts how much they can pay out. You have, you know, issues from abroad, like the conflict in Ukraine, where you have all these really weird things that come out of left field. So I think that if you're looking at bank you know, bank earnings, Bank of America just indicated today, I mean, the U.S. consumer is very strong. It seems like housing is just fine. So if you're looking at consumer banking, J.P. Morgan's a very good place to be. It's why you see banks up today, even though you, you did see quite a bit of decline in their in their earnings, you know, year over year because of the conflict in Ukraine or some of the other trading differences that you saw year over year. 
But I do think that financials still represent a very good place to be if you're looking for dividend yield. And it's much more constant there than it will be in the mining and exactly. energy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, so, that's yeah. sort of, you know, you're, you're expecting, OK, maybe the financials, you know, I have to kind of kind of take what gives what the world gives me in terms of yields on the curve. But I, on the question of what to do with the others, EOG, Rio, I'm sure there's some of the rest of them that have similar impressive performance. Jamie, do you really think the discipline will be different this time? You know, if people are want to be in these stocks for a year or two, or what should their thought process be, you know, about how these companies are going to reward them or not over the medium term? Well, the, the good news with, with the payout ratios, it's a lot easier to predict. You know, when you have progressive dividend payouts, you never really knew when the dividends were likely to roll over or be cut. When you have these dividend payouts, you know, the ratios, you can actually predict a little bit better about how they're going to flow. So that's a little bit, uh, from an investment standpoint, it makes it a lot easier to own the stocks. And you can see when the commodity cycle starts to flip over, or if inflation starts to wane, or the supply chain issues, which has precipitated a lot of this anyway, start to go away, you can start to see quarter over quarter the change in earnings, and then you can predict what your dividend yield is going to be a little bit better as an investor. So that's, I think, one of the benefits of the way that these companies are restructuring their dividend payouts. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, Rio, for example, or even Pioneer, having the special dividend payouts where they actually start at a very low base where they can actually maintain them. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times these companies would reinvest their earnings at a time when it really didn't produce a lot of results. I mean, you're, they were reinvesting as times were good, only for the commodity cycle to flip over, and then they get themselves in terrible shape, and then have to cut the dividend just to maintain cash flow. So that's or or take on more debt. So that sort of created an environment that made the companies less investable. But yeah. I think what you're going to see is going to be more disciplined this go around. Yeah, is it is it different this time? Absolutely. I appreciate you pointing that out, Jamie, and for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jamie Cox. We have a news alert, everybody, on the federal mask mandate, specifically as it relates to airplanes and maybe to uh, to trains. Let's bring in Phil LeBeau for more. Phil, what are we learning? It's all mass transit, Kelly. A federal judge in Florida has basically said, look, the mask mandate that is issued by the CDC, he's invalidated it and said this mask mandate should not be allowed to stay in effect. Now, that doesn't mean that immediately people will not have to wear masks in airports or on airplanes or trains or buses, any mass transit. What it does mean is we are likely to see a couple of things happen here. One, some response legally, which the CDC has not issued so far, to this order from a federal judge. And two, it raises the question, while the CDC works in conjunction with the Department of Transportation and the White House, this is an order for the CDC. So does the Department of Transportation then step in and say, okay, well, then we're going to order that the masks remain in effect at airports and on airplanes. So a number of questions that need to be answered following this ruling from a federal judge. But again, it is noteworthy that a federal judge has said, you know what, I'm invalidating the face mask requirement for mass transit. Let's see if that actually leads to masks coming off on airplanes and in airports. Remember, that guideline, that requirement is in place until uh, May 3rd. It was supposed to expire today. It's in place until May 3rd. Kelly, so back to you. We asked Danny Savalos, who is a contributor over at MSNBC, legal analyst, what he made of the headline. Just quick knee-jerk reaction. He said, you know, if he rules this judge that it exceeds authority, then it should be a nationwide ban effectively. So some are confused because it came from a Florida judge, but he's 
suggesting it would carry national Correct. significance. And your point is that the federal it, government's go around could be by having a different agency reissue the mask mandate. Well, and that's part of the that's one question. The other question is, does the CDC immediately come back and say, fine, we appeal this stays in place while we appeal it to a an appellate court? Hmm. You know, I mean, there's a number of issues here. It doesn't mean immediately. Yes, this is a nationwide invalidation, if you will, because it's a federal judge. That said, there are a number of situations that could play out here, whether it's with the CDC or the Biden administration uh, and the court system. So well, I'm sure we will have more headlines later today and over the next couple of days in terms of response from the CDC or the Biden administration. No, but we appreciate the possible scenarios here as the shares uh, basically are paused, waiting uh, for further clarification, still not moving too much from where they were before those headlines crossed. Phil, thank you so much. Phil LeBeau, we appreciate it. Still ahead, there are key parts of the net zero objective that are often overlooked as clean energy ETFs have kind of taken a beating this year. We're going to get some under-the-radar names that might be able to help turn things around. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. The energy sector buzzing about the race to get to net zero, but one major component in reaching that goal that's often overlooked, despite costing trillions of dollars. Pippa Stevens joins us now with that story and some stocks to watch. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, just making green electricity isn't enough. We also have to be able to move it to get the power from the wind farm to your home. You need transmission, storage, smart grids, and other clean energy infrastructure. And this is an area that investors have traditionally overlooked. The opportunity here is huge. $50 trillion needs to be spent between now and 2050 to modernize grids, according to Bank of America. Meantime, U.S. power demand is expected to grow by two and a half times by 2040 as more things become electric. Beyond the well-known solar or EV names, there are a lot of companies vying for a piece of this large market. Bank of America pointed to industrial names like Siemens, as well as electrical equipment manufacturers Eaton and ABB. Goldman Sachs has a basket that they call Green Ablers, or the companies that will make the energy transition happen. That includes transmission construction companies like Quanta Services and Maztec, as well as equipment makers TE Connectivity and Emerson Electric. Now, performance has been mixed across these names this year, but exposure, Kelly, to clean energy is certainly a, a catalyst for these names. Well, and, you know, right now we're talking about natural gas prices spiking. This is a major cost, you know, contributor to the cost of electricity. What's it going to take to speed up uh, the transition plans? Is is you know are these high prices going to be one of those catalysts, or do the names you mentioned does that kind of stand in the way? So they all make some of these equipments that uh, that need to transmit power, but basically where we have the most solar and wind tends to not be where the most of it is consumed. We're talking the middle of America, and we need power on the coasts. So we really need to build out transmission infrastructure. But these projects face a lot of regulatory challenges. A lot of people don't want, you know, huge high voltage power lines in their backyard. And so it's a little bit of a disconnect here between what we need and what's possible. And they can take, you know, more than 10 years to build. So while that's on the future horizon, uh, there's certainly a lot of steps uh, in, in the way right now. No, it's such an obvious need. NIMBY gets in the way. Uh, Pippa, thank you very much. Coming up. 2021 was a boom year for munis, but this year is a whole lot different story. What was behind the largest first quarter outflows in nearly a decade? That's next.
Welcome back, everybody. Muni bonds taking a hit on rising rates in the first quarter. Issuance fell 8% from the previous year. Borrowing dipped below $100 billion for the first time since early 2020. And my next guest conducted a survey and found that three-quarters of Muni investors see negative flows continuing, and two-thirds of them are concerned or very concerned about more rate hikes from the Fed. Let's bring in Tom Koslick. He's head of Muni Strategies and Credit at Hilltop. Tom, welcome back. Here's my main question for the investors who are, are wondering if maybe this is an opportunity. How much has the typical yield on offer gone up? Is it is it pretty compelling or still still not? It's I'd say that there's a very compelling argument that's that we can make for uh, municipals across a lot of sectors. Uh, one of the indicators that we look at, uh, we look at municipal to corporate ratios. We look at the municipal to treasury ratios and where municipal to treasury ratios are concerned. There's a very strong argument to be made uh, over the last two years. The 10 year MT ratio uh, averaged around 70 percent and uh, over the last 10 years, it averaged around 90%. We're at about an 88% right now. So uh, the closer that gets to 90, the more attractive these uh, uh, these look. In addition, one of the things that I've been talking about for about two or three months now is on the retail side. I think that as A-rated hospitals, uh, the, the yield on A-rated hospitals rise above 3%, I think that retail money was going to start coming into the market. And sure. uh, those A-rated hospital yields are now over th- about 350. Wow. So for hospital yields, maybe three and a half percent. Barron's is kind of thinking the same thing I was talking about. They said muni bonds are now down so much that their buys again. They're talking about some bonds that have really plunged in price, offering more than four to four and a quarter percent. Of th- Do, does that sound a little too high for you? How can I distinguish a good credit from a bad credit? Yeah, one of the issues, and even where A-rated hospitals are concerned, you know, one of the things is from a credit perspective, the golden age of public finance is continuing. Uh, We really think that the federal money that came in last year is really continuing to help on the uh, tax back and on the revenue side. But even where those A-rated hospitals are concerned, uh, you got to be careful when you're selecting different credits. Uh, When we're looking at the airport sector or mass transit also, uh, we really like the recovery story still. I think that it's going to take a little longer than what people think. Uh, vehicle miles traveled and employments. It took years for those to recover after 9-11 and after the Great Recession. And so this recovery story is going to take a little longer than what people, I think, uh, are expecting. Yes, that is absolutely true for work from home. We will talk about that theme next time. But for now, like you said, A-rated hospitals, around 3.5%. That's where you'd recommend investors poke around. Tom, thanks again for your time. It's good to see you. Thank you. Tom Koslick with Hilltop Securities. Coming up, multiple states easing cannabis sales restrictions over the next few weeks. What it means for pot stocks next. It has been a long and winding road since voters approved recreational marijuana sales here in New Jersey. But those sales are now set to start in three days. Frank Holland has the fallout for companies that would stand to benefit as more states ease restrictions. Frank? Well, hey there, Kelly. U.S. cannabis stocks, they're down today. The M-O-M-S-O-S ETF, that's the only way on a major exchange to invest. But those companies that trade individually over the counter are expected to see the biggest boost this week from 420, which is the unofficial cannabis holiday, and the opening of adult use sales in New Jersey on Thursday. Cresco Labs, Green Thumb, Verano, and Terrasen, they all own the first stores that are able to sell adult-use cannabis. Remember, about 70% of cannabis shares are held by retail investors 
So they often trade on good news. New Jersey has millions of potential customers, and then if you add in Pennsylvania and New York, there are just millions more. Remember, it is illegal to cross state lines with cannabis, but in many states, the same is true with alcohol. Indirect beneficiaries are stocks that support the cannabis industry, including Scott's miracle Grow and Grow Generation. That's a company that sells hydroponics, as well as innovative industrial properties. That's a company that leases space for grow facilities. Myriad ways uh, to invest, if that's what you're looking for. Frank, thank you. Frank Holland. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.